Hello, and welcome to Mailing It, the official podcast of the United States Postal Service. I'm Jonathan Castillo. As we do from time to time on the podcast, today we're going to explore another instance of the Postal Service's impact in U.S. history. Back in the late 1800s, life was changing dramatically for Native Americans, who were being put on government-sponsored reservations and encouraged to adapt to U.S. culture and customs. A big part of this effort was teaching Native Americans to read and write in English. In this episode, we're speaking with Justin Gage about how America's indigenous population made the most of this education and how they used the United States Postal Service to their advantage. Justin is Assistant Professor of History, joining us remotely from campus at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. He is also the author of the book, We Do Not Want the Gates Closed Between Us, Native Networks and the Spread of the Ghost Dance. Welcome to Mailing It, Justin. Hey, thanks for having me. Really a pleasure to be here. I think the best place to start is to get an idea of what life was like for Native Americans back in the 1880s and 1890s when the ghost dance movement gained popularity. So what was the ghost dance and how did U.S. westward expansion affect the Native Americans who had been living on those lands? Yeah, that's a really good question. The and complicated one. The the ghost dance itself um, was a movement, a movement that involved dozens and dozens of different tribal nations in the West. And at the time, the 1880s, 1890s, Native Americans were colonized people living on reservations. Most, most all Western Native Americans had been forced onto these places. Some of these places were, were close to their homelands. Others were, were many hundreds of miles away from their homelands. But yet they were, they were confined there. They were, they were, they were told to be there and reservations were created to keep Native Americans away from white people. Also created to keep Native Americans away from each other, from other tribes. The ghost dance movement, was able to spread from reservation to reservation because of networks of communication that had been established uh, in the years before the ghost dance began in 1889. And so whenever Native, Native Americans were placed on reservations in the 1870s, largely, some of them before, these Western Native Americans, they were able to maintain their networks intertribally, despite being oftentimes hundreds and thousands of miles away from each other. Um, and so they were colonized people and, and reservation systems were, uh, was created under a system of colonization. Native Americans weren't, weren't there by choice. And on reservations, the U.S. government were, was trying to assimilate them, was trying to change them, was trying to, to take away their traditional languages, their traditional customs. They were trying to educate them, um, in a, in a so-called Americanized educational system. And the English language was, you know, really the foundation of Indian education, the assimilation. The thinking was is that there was this, there was this, the English was superior to native languages. They actually believed racially uh, English was superior, superior. And that uh, if, if Native Americans could begin to speak English and read and write English, that they could become better. They, they could become better despite their, their, you know, at the time believed by many, their racial inferiorities. Um, and so the ghost dance was a belief among many, and this spread rapidly, that 
that perhaps their lives could become better and perhaps uh, the white people controlling them, the white people around them, perhaps they would, they would go away. Perhaps, perhaps uh, that the government could, could stop, you know, running their lives. And so in many ways, the Ghost Dance Movement was an anti-colonial movement, uh, a religious movement. Let me ask you this, Justin. You mentioned about, uh, you know, there was this thinking that a common language could potentially help, you know, erase the differences between, um, you know, the natives and the whites, right? To me, and correct me if I'm wrong, of course, that sounds like it would be kind of, you know, a new thing for Native American culture, right? The hundreds of different tribes using the same language, in this case, English, right? That seems like a tough sell. Sure. For the Eastern tribes, um, contact with the English language, uh, becoming literate. Um, for Eastern tribes like the, you know, the Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, other, many others, um, that, was, that was something old. But for Western tribes, those that were had their homelands in what we think of as the West, you know, largely west of the Mississippi River, it was, you know, uh, 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 there was in the 1840s missionaries arriving, 50s, 1860s, many, many more white Americans arriving and, uh, and more missionaries. And then the government started to uh, create schools and reservations. And the English accessibility to, to, to the English language was rising. And many Native Americans, especially leaders, thought, well, the English language is the language of our colonizers, the language of our enemy. Um, it's the language of, uh, you know, the language on these laws and these treaties, the, the language on on these 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 agents telling us what to do, how they their communicates, all in English. And so there was thought English learning English, our children learning English could be beneficial. Um, and so some some parents, some leaders, <clears throat> you know, chose to ask for for schools on their reservations. Some chose to to send their children to, to boarding schools. But many others, many, many others were coerced into sending children to school. Despite all this, of course, is that many Native Americans used this education, used the English language. And in some cases, in missionary schools, some Native Americans were learning literacy in their own language, especially those like Dakotas or Lakotas, um, Omahas, others, they were learning you know, uh, a written form of their language. They're using this, and as literacy rates grew, they're, they're using this for their own benefit. And so, you know, it's hard to tell exactly how many Native Americans in the West were reading and writing, you know, by 1889 or so. But looking at the government numbers, it's, you know, uh, among Western tribes, major Western tribes, it's around 18% of the population. And that was a pretty big Changed because you know ten years before it was probably around three percent among those same people in those same tribes. So they're using this to take advantage of eventually, of course, the postal system, which is of course why we're here today. And every and every reservation had a post office or at least mail delivery. Some reservations had multiple post offices, and they used that to their advantage. I really like what you said about uh, the younger generation kind of latching on to the idea that being able to communicate in a singular language um, could potentially help, you know, their communication networks, intertribal relations and things of that nature. Let me ask you this. You mentioned at the end, uh, that's kind of where the postal server centered, right? And, and, and the mail. So 
at that time, how were Native Americans using the Postal Service? In a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways that, of course, you would expect. Um, in a lot of ways that white people were using it. The difference was, of course, is that that Native Americans often experienced separation because of the forces of colonization. Families were, were ripped apart because part of the tribe was forced to live on this reservation. The other part of the tribe was forced to live on that reservation. The kinship ties um, across you know, the Great Plains were, were vast. And so people were separated. Um, tribes were separated. People, tribes that had these long histories of, of friendship, of kinship, of e- even of rivalry. And so Native Americans, despite being separated on reservations, they could send these letters to their friends and family, uh, to other leaders. Many one important use early on was diplomacy. Um, tribes, we don't think about tribes often enough as nations. <clears throat> they were, they were, they are nations, um, and they had leadership, and they had they had economies, and they had. Uh, Cultures, societies, you know, hundreds of them, and they used letters to interact with each other diplomatically. Oftentimes in the 1880s, it was to, to make peace, to, to cool relations, to solidify relations. Um, even before reservations, uh, you know, began popping up, Native Americans visited post offices. They used post offices. Um, eventually, on reservations, you see anecdotes of government agents, Indian agents who ran the reservations, they would write, you know, on mail day, the post office is swamped with people wanting to send and receive letters. Um, illiterate Native Americans would ask people working in the, in the store or the post office to, to, to translate, to write. Um, you have, you have agents who are saying most of the day is spent on mail day doing that. You also have Native Americans asking for more post offices. There were fewer post offices per square mile on on reservations than anywhere else in the West. Um, the government did not go out of their way to service Native American communities. Um, and so, you know, you have Indians writing to the government asking for more post offices, making it more accessible. You have agents writing on their behalf. Um, you have Native Americans running or at least trying to run their own post offices. There's a lot of examples of of the desire to use the post among Native Americans in the 1880s, 1890s. So what I'm hearing is that even though it wasn't necessarily legally permitted for a Native American to serve as a postmaster at that time, it sounds like they really connected with their communities, like you said. So it was kind of like a beacon of, you know, uh, maybe sanctuary hope um, within the reservation. Does, Does that characterize it? Yeah, I think I think they become hubs of communication, um, and and they weren't just using it to, um, you know, to communicate, you know, everyday news. Of course, they did that tons. They were also communicating it in ways um, that went against, you know, what the government would hope. They were using the they were using the mail in ways that the white officials didn't expect. And in ways that they didn't want them to use them. Uh, so some of the mail was used to, to push back against government power, colonial power. Um, some of the mail was used to, you know, petition, petition for better, uh, conditions to, to, 
to make a, make the public aware of abuses on on reservations, to make the public aware of of corruption, uh, to petition for uh, laws to be passed or not be passed. Um, and so they use the mail to receive all sorts of correspondence um, that would inform them on the happenings of the country, the happenings of the government, the happenings of Indian affairs. They would get newspapers in the mail. Um, and so they consumed all these new sources of information. And by doing that, they're connecting themselves to white sources and to this national web of communication that was expanding across the continent in that in that era. Um, and so, you know, it's very important that they stay connected to friends and families on other reservations, but they could do this. They could use letters to express their thoughts and belief outside of the control of white Americans. And this communication, of course, is intertribal and accelerates the development of these larger intertribal communities across the West. And this, this really sets up uh, the spread of, of, of movements like the ghost dance in 1889. Right. And that you led right into my next question, which is really, it, it seems like the ghost dance movement was a really good example of how well Native Americans could leverage the Postal Service to organize and to try and hold on to their way of life and preserve their culture. Can you give us a little bit more detail about what the ghost dance movement was and the role the Postal Service played in organizing it. You could, you could say that the, that the mail was very important in the success of the ghost dance. The 1890 ghost dance is, is the fastest spreading Native American religious movement uh, that, that we know about. So the, the ghost dance movement um, originated in really Western Nevada from a single man named Wavoka or Jack Wilson. Wavoka had this set of ideas and he believed he received these ideas from, from God or the creator, uh, these ideas in a vision, or set of, a set of visions. And these ideas he began to, he believed he had to, you know, tell other Native Americans about. At first it was locally, then regionally. Eventually it's a continental movement. And this native controlled conversation is spread in part through letters. Um, and so the, you know, the fastest way to get news of this from Nevada to, to, to the Dakotas, of course, was letter. And, and so the ghost dance, you know, was, was a, was a set of ideas that was largely ethical in its teachings. It, there was no, you know, ghost dance handbook. There was no, it was not doctrinal. So Voga's teachings included things like be a, a better person, work harder, don't be violent. Actually, he's taught people to send their, send their kids to school. And also do this dance, do this dance um, in this way. And if you do it long enough, that the world will change. This will this will usher in a revolution, a change in your lives, a change in our lives, and in 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 many ways the the dance, um, like in other native dances, was an expression 
actually dancing was an expression of one's belief, one's reverence for the creator. Um, deeply personal, but done communally. You know, over time, this dance spread in part because a lot of folks wanted to experience that. Um, and so it meant many different things to many different people. And it's really hard to explain what ghost dance was because of that. But a lot of folks who believed it, uh, many people thought would, would, you know, revolutionize the world. Perhaps, perhaps it would be this event, this, this culmination after dancing that would lead to the disappearance of, of white folks. And of course, the ghost dance was entirely peaceful. It was entirely, um, nonviolent, but white people, you know, heard that, that Indians were dancing to get rid of us. And they were afraid of it. They're also afraid of the intertribal nature of it. Anytime tribes, you know, banded together, you know, joined forces in the eyes of of white folks, it it spelled danger. Of course, um, the, the, the ghost dance was entirely, entirely peaceful. How did the U.S. government react when it found out that Native Americans were using, you know, our infrastructure to promote the ghost dance movement? The ghost dance wasn't the only thing that was being spread that that white officials, U.S. officials uh, didn't want to be spread. That There were all sorts of things that, that were being spread through the mail that they thought might weaken their efforts, their reservation system. And so, you know, 1879, there's there are um, there are Omaha's writing letters to Ponca's. And the Poncas, according to their agent, were, were getting really upset about their situation in Indian Territory. They had, they had been removed Indian Territory from their homelands. And the government thought the Omahas were the ones causing the Poncas to be upset because of this correspondence. Um, there's, there's, uh, you know, many, many examples of censorship of the government trying to stop a mail being sent to, to certain people or certain times for certain reasons. And a lot of those were, of course, regarding the ghost dance, yeah, the, the school's most likely censored mail, the Carlisle Indian School superintendent, Richard Henry Pratt, was going through the mail probably, at least at least in many instances, the mail that students were receiving. Um, and so the U.S. government, when the ghost dance comes around, the ghost dance becomes a big deal in the American press. Um, and government officials thought they needed to stop this. How do you stop it? Well, you stop Native Americans from communicating with each other. You stop the spread of it. So you have this system of surveillance and spies, informants. You're trying to infiltrate Native networks. And censoring the mail was a part of that. You have you have uh, the agent at the Kiowa Agency, the Kiowa Reservation, actually asking the, uh, the government to ask the postmaster if he can peruse their mail to see if they take out the letters being written about the Maasai in the West, Wavoka. There's at least one instance at Standing Rock where Native Americans, uh, Lakotas, had to cross the Missouri River to mail a letter in the dead of night. They had to cross the river, nighttime, uh, they didn't want to be seen. They went to the nearest white town across the Missouri River to mail a letter because they knew their agent, James McLaughlin, wouldn't mail it. So, you know, you have, you have running antelope, standing bear, thunderhawk. Um, they're writing a letter to protest uh, to the Secretary of the Interior to say that that their agents, their agent, um, was treating them poorly, was 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 violating their religious freedom <clears throat> and other other things. 
So there's a risk this this journey <clears throat> to find a, a, a place to mail their letter. Justin, let me ask you this. Do you think the ghost dance movement's success encouraged other Native Americans to use the mail as a way to fight for their rights, possibly in other ways? I think so. I, th- I think I think many knew knew that before the ghost dance. Um, but you know, the, the ghost dance success certainly was an event that led more people to use the, the mail, or at least to to rely upon it. Perhaps I think I think by the ghost dance by eighteen eighty nine. You know, most Native Americans, especially those who are literate, saw the mail as a very practical tool for communicating. And, you know, the average Native American, the average person on a, on a reservation, they weren't a part of the leadership, perhaps. They realized that letters gave them access to the people who were controlling their lives. It gave them access to people like the American president. And that way they could they could have some sense of control of their own lives. They didn't have to go through their Indian agents on the reservation. They could bypass this vast forest of colonial bureaucracy that was built around them. And so the ghost stance was you know, this this movement that that depended in part on people's ability to use the mail to communicate over over long distances. From what you've said about the ghost dance movement it had a big impact on Native Americans in a lot of ways. What kind of influence would you say uh, the movement had beyond the original call to action? There was this big effort where Native Americans tried to communicate to, to white Americans what this meant and that they should have the religious freedom to perform the ghost dance, to believe these things. Um, but for the most part, you know, white people misunderstood it but it inspired i think a lot of folks native americans to be more unified some native americans many actually they saw hope in the movement they 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 saw hope for for change they they saw hope for um a living a life like they had in the past even though the ghost dance wasn't necessarily an old-time religion it was a very innovative uh, religion a, a movement, um, and after the the you know famous and, and horrible event at Wounded Knee, the Wounded Knee massacre, which occurs in late 18, 1890, and many people see the ghost dance ending with Wounded Knee. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, in reservations like on Lakota reservations, the ghost dancing went more and more underground. Um, but in other parts, especially Indian territory, the ghost dance actually peaks in 1891. And so ghost dancing is, is persisting and it even persists into the, into the 1900s. It spreads as far as, as Canada, um, along these intertribal connections. Incredible. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining the podcast. You've given us so much insight on Native American culture during the 1800s, during the 1900s. It was truly an honor, sir. Thank you. I'm honored as well. I had a fun time and I look forward to future episodes of of Mailing It. Now we're ready for another Did You Know? Our segment that reveals some lesser known facts about the Postal Service. These days, 
It's hard to imagine walking more than a few blocks without coming across one of the Postal Service's iconic blue mail collection boxes. In fact, there are nearly 140,000 blue collection boxes in use across the U.S. Did you know that street letter mailboxes, as we know them today, date back to the late 1850s when a Philadelphia merchant first patented a cast iron letter box designed to connect to city lampposts? Those cast iron boxes replaced an assortment of different types of collection boxes that the Postal Service had used over the years in select cities. Those first boxes had been placed inside shops and other small businesses and were hard to find. Street mail collection box designs have evolved a lot over time. Before 1970, they were green, then red, then white, then green again, and finally, beginning in 1955, red, white, and blue. There have been exceptions made from time to time. In March 2007, the Postal Service unveiled a special mailbox designed to look like the droid from Star Wars, R2-D2. More than 400 R2-D2 mailboxes were placed in cities throughout the U.S. in connection with the stamp issuance celebrating the 30th anniversary of the movie. These were regular mailboxes wrapped with a vinyl skin. And in 2013, the cartoon character SpongeBob SquarePants appeared on collection boxes in 13 cities. The boxes were a part of a letter-writing campaign geared towards children in partnership with Nickelodeon. And that wraps up today's enlightening conversation exploring the ghost dance movement of the late 1880s and early 1890s and its connection to mail. We gained new insight on the Postal Service's role in helping Native American tribes organize the movement, exchange new ideas, connect across the entirety of the nation, and ultimately preserve their culture and legacy. A heartfelt thank you once again to our guest, just engage and to all our listeners thanks for tuning in until next time that's all for this episode of mailing it don't forget to subscribe to mailing it wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out on any new episodes and follow along on instagram at u.s postal service x formerly known as twitter at usps and on facebook (laughs) 